Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Bible reading taken from Romans 6, 1 to 14. At the end of this reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Kindly respond saying thanks be to God. Romans 6, 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be also united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Justina. Good morning, everyone, on this Easter morning. 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 You know, um, a little secret about preaching right, that uh, they don't tell you. You know sometimes why um, preachers, why we like to have some music in the background. There's something about music. It creates an atmosphere. And the truth is, what the preacher is trying to do is, we are trying to get somewhere. There's a place that if we enter into that place, you know, everything can start to happen. We usually call it the anointing, (laughs) you know. And so sometimes when we come and we start and we just say, let's just sing this song. The thing is that the preacher is not yet there. <laughs> so he needs to enter. But there are times, honestly, where you don't even need to do anything because you already feel the presence of the Spirit here. And men have already started to feel it. Um, where's Mojola? That was awesome. That was awesome. You know? And Elijah and the music team, where are they again? You know, that was just, that was good. It wasn't, not you, not you, Elijah, but yes, uh, the other, we have to, what a blessing 
uh, you know, to be in a church where there are two Elijahs. <laughs> so that if one goes, <laughs> Jackpot's not uh, to that one. There's, there's another Elijah. Now, I'm so happy, you know, Easter is just one of those, it, there's a feel-good uh, part of it, you know, that just, it just comes, I, I don't know. And um, I would say if you, are, if you are parents, let's try and make it um, something that our children look forward to. Last night, our children were trying to pick up, they pick out the clothes that they were going to wear. And then eventually, you know, um, one of the nannies helped pick out some uh, a particular outfit they'd never worn before. And um, we just asked the first song, we said, do you want to wear it? He said, no. We said, why don't you want to wear it? He said, because tomorrow is Easter. I need to wear something more special than that. So if you see him next week and you don't like what he's wearing, just understand what happened. <laughs> And if you are new here, thank you for coming. My name is Femi. I do want to share uh, something with you that I think, uh, a, a hopefully a word that the Lord is bringing to us this Easter. You know, 2013, many people said 2013 was probably the best year in human history. 2013. There was a guy called Zach Beauchamp, and he wrote five reasons why 2013 was the best year in human history. Of those five, some of them included this. That fewer people lived in extreme poverty than ever before. And so people were happier. Another one is that war was becoming rarer and less bloody. And then third one was that racism, sexism, and all forms of discrimination were becoming all the other isms. We are becoming less and less. That didn't age very well. <laughs> Have you looked at the world recently? So in some ways, probably he is right. Maybe when you can compare with 2020 and 2021, it could be that we look with nostalgia for the heady days of 2013. But I do want to say something else about 2013. 2013 was a significant year for something else. There was something else that is part and parcel of humanity. We've been seeing it, but it took an accelerated form in 2013. What is it? Well, I can illustrate by removing my hat, the PF hat for a while, PF meaning Pastor Femi, and I put on another hat, a hat that some of the old-timers here love so much. A hat that doesn't just say something about what I'm going to do, but it says something about me, myself. It's just three acronyms that describe me. You know, PF is two. Let's do three. It's me being the GQ. See, I told you it says something about me. So GQ, you know, I probably should be on the GQ. The GQM. <laughs> GQM. You see, I go by many titles, but this is my second favorite title, the GQM. Which means what? I have a quiz for you this is time. I wanted to guess a number of things. You see, Oxford Languages, which produces Oxford Dictionaries, every year for about a decade plus, they produce their word of the year. Their word of the year is meant to express, is meant to well, choose a word that has garnered a lot of interest over the course of that year. So in 2021, what do you think the 
word of the year was? Eh? COVID. Anybody else? Eh? Unprecedented. Woo! Unprecedented was sort of 2020, but there were many words in 2020. Anybody else? Eh? Who said what? What's the answer? Vax. Vaccine. Eh? Who is that? Who is that smart person? More anointing for you. More anointing for you. Oh, I think that was 2021. Let's skip a few years. How about 2018? You can't even remember. 2018 or so far. That is, that's what we call, you know, there is AD and BC. There is now going to be, right, AC and BC. Before COVID and after COVID. So now we're going to AC, BC, before COVID. All right. So now we don't even remember what happened between them. Anybody wants to guess 2018, word of the year? Eh? So people are using Google here. Yeah. <laughs> answer, toxic. The answer is toxic. That's where we start hearing about toxic masculinity. Some of you men here. Toxic relationships. A toxic work environment. Everything was just so toxic. I mean, man. Toxic churches. Toxic pastors. Thank God we have none of that here. What about 2016? Let me give you a, a, a clue. 2016 was a very significant election in America. Uh, that's, Trump is not, like, that's the name of somebody. I mean, now you guys are brighter than this now. Come on. 2016, anybody? Don't Google. Some people have been Googling. There's always fake news. Ah, close, close. 2016 was post-truth. Like, what is truth anyway, sir? We are beyond truth. Final one, 2013. 2013 was the word, give it to me, selfie. <laughs> it wasn't as though people were not into themselves. In fact, the generation from mid 19 were born between mid 1940s, uh, late 1940s, and mid 1960s, what we call boomer generation, the baby boomers, they were called the me generation. They were the generation about individualism. But the thing is that the individualism did not stop with them. So after them came the Gen X, these ones that were born from 1965 to 1980. They too were really me. But when it came to the millennials, the guys that were ruling in 2013, the 1981 to 1996, Time magazine said, if the boomer generation were a me generation, these ones were the me, me, me generation. Because you see, by 2012, the algorithms on social media had become very addictive. And before that, two years before that, smartphones had penetrated all around. And so it sought to emphasize the me in everything. Do you want to participate in an event? How does it benefit me? I want to post something on social media. I want to write something with eloquence, but I need a picture that makes me look so well. I still cannot understand it. You'll be talking about accounting and how accounting is really important for the world, and yet you're like... <laughs> What does that have to do with accounting? 
And at the same time, when we go to church, we say, that sermon, was it good? The sermon is really only good if I know how it, re uh, how it is re related to me, me, me. I know many times, Good Friday and Easter services don't mean much to a lot of us. Why? Because the question we're asking is, how does it relate to me? And as a good pastor, this is where I'm meant to tell you that Good Friday and Easter is not really about you. It's really about someone else. It's about Jesus. But I'm not going to be a good pastor today. Sort of. The truth is, it is about primarily about Jesus. But, it's not exhaustively about Jesus. You see, if Jesus is God that became a human being and we are created in his image, then the most significant thing that happened to Jesus is going to have the most significant implications towards us. Are we following? And so this morning, we want to do something slightly different with Easter. We want to indulge the craving for relevance that is coming up in all of us. We want to focus in some ways on the me that you are asking for. But here's what I can guarantee you. As God so often does, you will hear a word, not the word that you want, but the one that you most desperately need. And I pray that as we open up the scriptures, you will see that whilst Easter is primarily about Jesus Christ, you will see that if Jesus truly came to life, he has put to death the worst thing that is at work in us. I hope that we will see that as because Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection life spells the end or the death of death and the death of sin. And I pray that as we listen to this message, somebody is going to have freedom from sin today. Amen? Amen. All right, so that's why we titled this message. Tommy's message on, on Friday was Life by Death, and we've titled this message Death by Life. We look at it by, asking, by answering these three questions. What happened? What happened? What's happening? And what will happen? Three questions about Easter. What happened? What's happening? And what will happen? All right, so let's start. What happened? My father-in-law was once stuck in another country. A few, a couple of years ago, he was stuck in another country. And by stuck, I mean something happened. He lost access to his account, his main account. And he needed to be able to move and do certain things. So he sent me an email that I should help out. He can't send money, uh, he can't use that main account, the card attached to that account, but he can use another account, so I should please help him send some money. It was then I realized that the man gave me a bit of a hard time when I was pursuing his daughter. <laughs> and so without his, because he didn't copy his daughter in the email. So without his daughter knowing, I just put marked on red. He <laughs> said, revenge is sweet when it's served what? Hot. Now is my time. For all those fathers who have daughters today, one day, every day is for the thief. <laughs> but one day, now she was my own. Eh? What's my business? <laughs> call you, call you, call you. I prostrate. You are doing hard to get. Eh? Now you need me. So I left him. 
Luckily for him, though, he sent the same email to others as well. But the others, of some of the others that did respond and sent him money, they weren't very lucky. Because Yahoo boys had hacked his account. You see, the real reason I didn't send him money was because I knew what was written in that email wasn't true. And because he hadn't traveled, I knew he was still in Abuja. <laughs> like, for which one is his daddy sending me? But the real reason why those other people sent him the email and sent him the money was because they believed that it was true. In other words, each of our responsive behaviors was rooted in what we thought was factual. There's a lot about what the resurrection means for us, means to us. It's asking us to apply it into our lives. But can I tell you this? Everybody here, it should not matter one jot what he says if the resurrection is not true. You see, you, almost have, you often have two broad groups of people concerning the resurrection of Jesus, whether it's fact or not. You have the Christians that say, I don't really care. Because what I know is that Jesus resurrected in my heart. So even if somebody comes and shows me on Discovery Channel or something that it really didn't happen, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If you see, it doesn't matter. You will be like the kind of person that sent my father-in-law money. Because it doesn't really matter whether he was the one that sent the email or not, as long as I believe it, what? In my heart. Turn to your neighbor and say, you will be scammed. <laughs> if it didn't happen, don't take my word from it. The Bible says you should not apply it to yourself. But then you have the people who say they don't believe it happened. Without necessarily really checking the evidence for whether it happened or not. To that kind of person if you are here, I would say, imagine I told some of the people that my father-in-law was not the one that sent that email. And they said, without checking the evidence, I don't believe you. Their refusal to believe me will not change the fact that it wasn't my father-in-law that sent that email. It will not change that fact. It will change something, though, in their own lives. They will be scammed. Turn to your neighbor and say, you will be scammed. <laughs> you see, Paul applies the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. He doesn't just say, you know, let's imagine that Jesus rose from the dead. No, look at verse 9. He says, for we know. We what? Know. It's something we know. But then what we know is rooted in history. It says, since. You know why you use the word since? It's like since that has happened. Since there is light. Since there is, East, uh, today is Sunday, you come to church. Since it must be rooted in historical truth first. For we know since Christ 
was raised from the dead. But you say, man, you know what? <laughs> we are the ancients, old people. This was written like 2,000 years ago. Like, you know, then they didn't really have much sense. They weren't as skeptical like me. They weren't as exposed as I was. You see, because I, for me, to believe in the resurrection that somebody came from the dead, it's an incredible thing. It's probably even an incredulous thing. And at that time, they did not have the faculties, the mental faculties. They had not evolved to where I am to today. And some of you have still not evolved to where I am today. Can I tell you a bit too late? Because in Paul's time, in Acts chapter 26, verse 8, he faced people that are skeptical like you. He says, with all the evidence, though, that he knew, even though they were skeptical, Paul says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? In other words, first of all, Paul was faced with people that were skeptical. Second, Paul knew that it wasn't normal that people would just rise from the dead. But there was a confidence that he had. It's like, how can we think somebody was raised from the dead? And he's like, how can you think it's an incredible thing for God to raise the dead? So I do want to address a little bit of this skepticism, first of all. Because somebody will say, well, you know, I can understand that you as a Christian, as a believer, you believe in miracles, but I can't believe in miracles. To which I want to say, it doesn't matter that you don't believe in miracles. You still cannot prove that the resurrection didn't happen. I want you to examine two premises. First premise. Let us say, as you do, you don't believe, we don't believe in a God that created the world. God didn't create the world. In other words, if God, as we know God to be, did not create the world, then you have to believe that the world, as we know it, came to be by chance. That is, the ordered world that we know today randomly happened to come to being. It accidentally happened. That the Big Bang was accidental and that the evolution of the human species was by random natural selection. We have to accept that. If that's the case, and I grant it to you, what is there to stop any other strange thing like the resurrection from happening? Something less strange than an ordered universe coming out from absolute random chance. Can I break it down a little bit more? You see, with this premise I have just stated, the normal state of affairs is not predictability, it's unpredictability. We did not start from order and move to chaos. We started from chaos. And then by chance, somehow, somehow, the whole thing just happened. Somebody rolled dice at 6 6 1,500 times. And somehow it just happened. And we got to where we are. We moved from where? Chaos to order. So the normal state of affairs, especially if you think that we had a universe for billions and billions of years randomly, do you know that the strange thing is that we've had order for the last couple of thousands of years? That is the abnormality. Is anyone following what I'm saying? So, if it is abnormal that we are in a place of order, how can you say 
with certain predictability that it is not possible for somebody to rise from the dead. It falls on your own premise. If you start from a place where we move from order to chaos, and order is the normal state of, uh, from chaos to order, and chaos is the normal state of affairs, you cannot then say with predictability that everything has to be ordered. If the universe came to be randomly and by chance, believe me, <laughs> Jesus rising from the dead becomes child's play. I'm not saying it proves the resurrection. I'm saying it certainly does not disprove it. Amen? Now, let me give you a second premise. You actually believe in a world that God created. And by that, it means that nothing existed and continues to exist that he did not create, he did not supervise, nor did he sustain. If that world is true, then it is not too far-fetched for him to violate his own laws that he set occasionally for his own purpose with something like possibly the resurrection. Why? Because ultimately the lawgiver is not under his laws, he is above his laws. If God created the world and set the laws there, then he can occasionally violate his laws. Some people are looking at me strange. Let me give you an example. I am the master of my own house. I am the king of my own castle. When it comes to where I live, I am the Lord. I am the lawgiver. If you come to my house, if you are going to stay in my house for a while, I have certain rules that I have put in place. One of the rules in my house is that you don't walk around without wearing slippers or shoes. Simple. You no, know, you can't walk barefooted in my house. You just can't. It's an abomination. And so, anyone that's going to come into our house, you know, for, you know, if you're just visiting, we can allow with a little bit of mild irritation. If you did that. But if you're going to stay a longer period of time, please, you have to, you know, show like you have manners and wear some shoes. And so if anyone is going to come and work with us as well, domestically, they have to put on their slippers. Now, that law applies for everybody. A couple of years ago, four or five years, there was a nanny that came to work with us. And at a certain period of time, my wife um, forgot something. She wanted to check something in the kids' living room. It's on the same floor as our room. So she wasn't really thinking about anything. She just walked out of the room and then went to the children's living room. And then she saw the nanny. And the nanny said, ah, madam, where is your slippers? <laughs> Oga said that we all should be wearing our slippers. The poor, you know when the Bible says your condemnation is just. The poor girl got what came to her. It was at that point she realized there were two lawgivers in the house. <laughs> you see, what was the point? The point here is this. My wife, too, as that lawgiver, she has the right to what? Violate her law for a particular reason. Are you following me? The lawgiver has the right to violate their law because they are not under the law. They are what? Above the law. 
Now, if you believe in this premise, this premise says that God created an ordered world. That is, the ordered world came from an ordered God. God is not the author of confusion. And so when we see his creation and we see order in it, it makes sense. But the problem was that those he created in his image, they rebelled against him. And when they rebelled against him, they introduced chaos into the system that was ordered. That chaos was, result, was manifested in what we call sin that then led to death. But God is a God of order. And if he's going to restore the order, then God has to violate his laws to intervene into the system that he created so that he can restore order. And so the resurrection is God's intervention to restore order back into his world. He's a God that has intervened into his world before he continues to intervene. Some of us that drive cars, we know a little bit about this. It is not every time you drive your car. How many of us buy fuel inside our car every day? How many of us buy fuel inside our car every day? No. We occasionally buy fuel inside our car. The normal order of things is that we drive our car without going to the filling station. But maybe every seven days, or maybe every 14 days, we intervene into the system so that the chaos of the car, you know, that entering into the system, all of those things, we intervene into it so that we restore the order. Are you following what I'm saying? Which of these premises makes more sense? I know where I'm betting my money on. I don't have enough faith to believe either premise one or the conclusion that even premise one does not reach. What happened really happened. Paul says, why do you think it an incredible thing that God raised the dead? He did not say, why do you think it an incredible thing that dead people live? It is, why do you think it an incredible thing that God raised the dead? The dead cannot come back to life on their own. But if it is the God that created this world and supervises this world, he can raise people from the dead. Are we following? And so if we know that is what happened, the next question is, what's happening? Because what's happening currently, that's what happened before. What's happening currently is how it applies to us. So my second point, why is Good Friday and Easter, and why, is, why is Good Friday good? Why is Easter, why are they so important? Can I tell you that they are mostly they are very important because they are the most important factor in how we live our lives. Remember I said sin brought chaos into this world and that God is restoring order. But we still often struggle with sin. How many of us don't struggle with sin? Just raise your hand. Let's see the liars here. <laughs> We still often struggle with sin, despite the fact that we are told not to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. Verse 12. It's not that we don't know. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey his evil desires. I know, but I am still sinning. Despite all the measures of wisdom we put again in to, uh, to combat our anger, to combat our sexual immorality, our arrogance, our deceitfulness, we still seem to be losing this fight of sin. But you will win. 
And let me explain how. Some of us have met um, Emmanuel, otherwise known as Pastor Seski. No longer, actually. There was a time he was, but now he's been married for too long. Now he's, he's putting on too much weight. All of that has now gone. <laughs> Some people see me and Emmanuel and they say, why is it? Emmanuel's the guy that wore uh, the, uh, is it purple or pink or lilac or what? Onion um, um, <laughs> native. My God. And some people will say, okay, that, why, why do I talk about him this way? Why am I harsh? If you see both of us relate to each other, say, why am I harsh to him? He's a, he's a leader in church. Why, why do I treat him this way? And I'll say, it's very simple. It's the way he treats me. <laughs> you think I'm harsh to him? Emmanuel, Emmanuel, oh God. <laughs> I'll give you an example. I'll give you, because he finds ways of getting at me. But there's one way he has devised. And this thing pains me when it happens. Because it is like he uses one stone to kill two birds. So, he does something that annoys me. Maybe it's my birthday, maybe it's my anniversary, maybe it's my, you know, something. Emmanuel will either see me, or when he sees me, or sense text, but mostly when he sees me, he'll say something like this. Oh, we love you, daddy. Oh, come on, I want to hug you. And I'm like, oh, stay away, what is all of this? He's no, that we love you, we love you, daddy. And when I am not really in myself, when I'm so angry that he's doing this, I then respond. I respond in a way that I should never respond. The first thing I just say is, who's your daddy? <laughs> And then the guy starts laughing again. <laughs> Justina read 6, 1 to 14 for us. But before 6, 1 to 14 is Romans 5, 12 to 21. That's what Tommy preached from on Good Friday. And let me tell you, when you read Romans, 12, Romans 5, 12 to 21, it's really asking one question. Who is your daddy? <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say, who's your daddy? <laughs> you see, look at verse 12 of Romans 5. Oh, they're still asking, right? <laughs> verse 12 of Romans 5. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through what? One man. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sin. Then verse 21 says, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Christ Jesus. So when he says, who's your daddy? Is it Adam through whom the sin that leads to death came? Or is it Christ through whom the righteousness that leads to eternal life came? Don't you anybody again and say, who's your daddy? Because what Paul then says, he takes the argument for that now in chapter 6, and he tells us another truth. What happened to your daddy happened to you. And so if Adam was your daddy, then what happened to Adam in that he sinned, and when you take him as, um, in his sinful behavior, and you match it against God's law, he is condemned by the law. Are you following? But that if you say Christ is your daddy, then what it then tells us, look at verses 3 to 4. It says, Oh, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Verse 6. For we know that our old self were crucified with him. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, if Christ is your daddy, since Christ died, you died. And we also see that in verse, uh, um, verse 4 and verse 12. Notice what it says in verse 4. It says, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have, we too may live a new life. And verse 11 it says, but uh, in the same account of death, but alive to God in Christ. If Christ is your daddy, then Christ, if Christ died, who died? You died. And if Christ was risen from the dead, guess what? You are also made alive. Why? Because it is rooted in this principle that anyone that believes in Christ is in him and he is united to him. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly, say certainly, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is no fiction. Some of us, we have a lot of lawyers here. You understand what I'm saying? Imagine that you hire a liar, a lawyer. Uh, they're not liars. Oh, gosh. Man. My learner colleagues, please. All right. All right. If you try and sue me, there are plenty of lawyers on staff. You can't get me. <laughs> what I, you can't. If you, hire, if you hire a lawyer to represent you in court, by and large, apart from if you are going to be a witness, by and large, when you are in court, you remain what? Silent. The lawyer is the one that represents you. Now, if the lawyer represents you, if the lawyer loses the case, even if you are innocent, guess what? You have lost. If the lawyer wins the case, even if you are guilty, guess what? You have what? Won. It doesn't matter what you did. It matters what the lawyer did. Irrespective of your personal record. Your record is his record. So can I tell you, when we are united with Christ, it doesn't really matter in terms of identity what we have done. What Christ has done is the most important thing, irrespective of our own personal record. If Christ died, we died. If Christ is alive, we are alive. Do you believe that? Because that is so relevant for the fight against sin. If that truth is true, and it is, then how does that help us in the fight against sin? Very simple. I want to combine, the, I want to tell you this truth from verses 9 and verse 14, if you put them together. It's absolutely powerful. It says in verse 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him, or death no longer reigns over him. Verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master. Of sin, and sin shall no longer be your lord or king. Because you are not under the law, you are under grace. If death no longer reigns over Christ, and you are in Christ, sin should no longer reign over you. That's the point. If death no longer reigns over Christ and you are in Christ, then sin should no longer reign over you. So what do you mean? Remember from what we read in chapter 5. It says, through one man, sin entered into the world 
And sin opened the door for someone else. You know what it was? It says, death by sin. So notice, one man, after the man followed what? Sin. After sin followed what? Death. Are we following? So, sin mastered Adam. And the evidence, the supreme evidence that sin is alive in this world, that sin is present in this world and is working. If somebody says, ah, me, I don't have sin. I've never sinned. Or from a certain period of time, once I found Jesus and I found certain keys, I no longer sin. Just wait. If the person dies, then you know the person was lying. Because the ultimate evidence that sin is present is what? People die. Are you following? Now, what happens? Remember, one man, sin that leads to death. Now, imagine if somebody has now conquered death and can no longer die again. What does that mean? It means that that person not only has conquered death, the person has also conquered sin. In other words, the resurrection of Christ, according to our title, the resurrection of Christ has not only spelled the death of death, it has also spelled the death of sin. And so that is why in verse 14, it says that sin will no longer will be your master. You are no longer under the law that points out sin and condemns sin, Why? Because Christ has defeated death and therefore has defeated sin. So now, if you are in Christ, you are no longer under that law, you are now under the grace of Christ. Is this confusing? Maybe I can take you further. This is all about giving us a new identity because if God were to allow us to work according to our own record. <laughs> it says, if you should mark iniquity, who shall what? Stand. Nobody can stand. All of us know, even this morning, we have committed one sin or the other. And if God says, let me allow that to happen, so that when you come before me, we cannot decide whether or not you are going to die eternally or not. And God says, the fact that you came before me, you came before me through death, isn't it? Sin was at work in you. And so if I allow you by your own obedience or disobedience to try to come into eternal life, nobody will come into eternal life. But because it started with one man that did not represent us well, before I start saying this, Adam, if you are Adam, you will have done the same thing. Tommy showed us that on Friday. Because he misrepresented us, God said the way these people fell into condemnation was through one man. So the only way they're going to come out of condemnation is through another man. But that man has to fight the fight that they cannot fight. He fought the fight of death and by defeating the penalty that comes through something, he has defeated that something itself. By defeating death, he shows that he has the power over sin. If Christ has conquered death, if he is the Lord of death, it follows that he is also the Lord of sin. Are we following now? That is why he doesn't just tell us to count ourselves dead as Christ is that if Christ died, you have died. But he says you should count yourselves, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin. You have to accept, if you are going to fight against sin, you first have to accept the identity, I am no longer a sinner. When somebody said, what was your surname? My surname was due, Adam. Adam no longer calls me again. 
Now your surname is due what? Christ. And if you are due Christ, you can no longer say that I am under sin. I am now under what? Grace. It is about changing our identity first before he changes our behavior. And we can accept this because as verse 10 said, the death that Christ died. You say, okay, hey, but does that do it once and for all? Look at verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin what? Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That is, he lives what? Forever to God. And somebody will say, ah, this is a bit, this is, um, this is, um, I wish you now we are not entering into error here. Because this thing that you are saying, it can be abusive. If somebody starts saying, I'm no longer a sinner, then the next thing is, I'm no longer a sinner, therefore I no longer sin. So, if we start talking about this grace too much, won't it lead to more sinning? Turn to your neighbor and say, you are too late. Because Paul has already anticipated that question. Verse 1. He says, shall we continue to sin or shall we go on sinning so that what? Grace may increase. And his answer in verse 2 is what? By no means. King James, what? God forbid. In other words, he's saying, this thing that you are anticipating, I've anticipated it. But the only way to have victory over sin, if you truly understand Easter, the only way to have victory over sin is through this. It is not by, let us give small grace, then let's give some caution. He said, this is the only way we have victory over sin. So, the next time you want to ask a question about the abuse of something, can I tell you this? This is a principle. Don't first ask whether it can be abused. Ask whether it is the truth. And then we can deal with the abuse later. And here is the truth. The truth is this. Actions do not flow. Our actions do not flow towards an identity. Our actions flow from an identity. You know this. You never go... You are never... Em- How many of us have worked for a company that we are not employed for? Employed at? We worked, worked, worked. They didn't recognize you as an employee. They didn't give you any job. They didn't say you should come. They don't know you, but you are working, working. And after you worked for them for two years, they now said, ah, now we can employ you. Now you are employed. Who, who has ever done that? Both you and the company, they should all be, you should be put in the psychiatric ward. Relation, see, vocation springs out of relation. We first have a relationship with the company, right? We are first employed by the company before we start working for the company. The relationship comes before the vocation, isn't it? Okay, let me use another one. And let me ask another question in another way. Somebody would say something, but why is it that I am still sinning when sin is dead in me? Why is it that I am still sinning when sin is dead in me? To which I want to say, who said sin is dead in you? Nobody said sin is dead in you. Paul did not say sin is dead to you. Paul said sin is dead to you. 
He did not say sin is dead in you. He said sin is what? Dead to you. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't preach error. Sin is dead to us. Not sin is dead in us. You know, some of us have been, we've had multiple relationships. Don't worry, God isn't judging you. We've had relationships, and because we've had different relationships, we have a category in our lives. It's a two-letter word, but it's one syllable. In fact, you can even represent it with one letter of the alphabet. The, third, the second to the last letter. We have what we call X's. How many of us? No, don't worry. You're having this relationship with this person, and eventually one day you wake up and you find out and say, This person is not who I thought the person was. The person is not nice. The person does this. The person 2018 is toxic. <laughs> so at one, at a certain point, you say, I'm breaking up this relationship, and next time you talk to your friend, you say, That guy or that lady is dead to me. Dead to me. Now, when you say they are dead to you, guess what doesn't happen? They are not actually dead. I know some of you want them dead, but <laughs> they don't immediately die. They are not dead by saying they are dead to you, and neither is the memory of them dead in you, despite your lies. Because we all know, you say that I don't think about them again, but you're always checking their Instagram post. You want to see whether or not they have blocked you. You want to see whether or not they are still following you. You understand? I've they moved all my pictures. They are neither dead nor dead in memory. They are not dead in you. They are not dead as well. They are dead to you. By saying they are dead to you, what you are saying is, according to our previous relationship, a romantic relationship, that relationship is as though it never existed because you are dead to me. And so what you must now do if they are dead to you is to start getting used to that. That is stop treating them as though you are in a relationship. Stop chatting with them. Stop checking out how they are. I just want to find out how you are. And that's how you make another mistake. I'm talking to some people here. You know. You know. You know. We spoke about it in the counseling booth. I'm not going to bring your name. Do you understand? Stop chatting. Stop having phone calls because that's where you enter into trouble. They are dead to you, but there is no new person here. You understand? There's no new person here. This person is no longer toxic. No toxin in them. They've taken all their green tea. All the toxins are gone. And this person is the new shining thing. If that person is dead to you, then this person is now alive to you. Stop being defined by what you are dead to. Now start being defined by what you are alive to. Paul says, sin is dead to you. He's not saying there is no longer sin again. He's saying your identity has changed. You are no longer in a relationship with sin. You are now in a relationship with Christ. Are you following what I'm saying? Now you are dead to sin because of what Christ did. And now you are alive to him. So now do not yield your bodies as an instrument towards sin. Live out of your identity. Don't live towards your identity. Now you are in Christ. Now live as though that are in Christ. So that's what it means to count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. I know there are some of us here who struggle with sin. And you are putting so many measures. Don't be mistaken. I am all for measures of wisdom. 
Don't go to this place at night. Don't go near this alcohol. Don't eat. They are all important. And the Bible has certain things to say about it. But whilst we need measures, we also need right thinking that comes with power. And the power is this. Don't allow yourself to be condemned when Christ has already been condemned for you. You are dead to sin. You are no longer a sinner. You are now called a saint. Yes, you are a sinning saint. But because of what Christ has done, sin can no longer be used as a noun for you. It can only be used as an adjective. A sinning saint. You are a saint. Now go and live as a saint. Amen. Amen. Finally, what will happen? Somebody here is saying something. I can guess. Somebody says, what good is all this when sin is still present in me? I'm tired of confessing. Some of you said, just say like, well, I can't go and meet Pastor Femi again. The one I did before is okay. You will just say, I'm not a serious person. <laughs> Truth be told, it's probably, probably don't come. <laughs> if you have done it twice, don't worry, God will deal with it. <laughs> But it does seem, you say, it does seem, this supposed victory of Christ, it does seem like it's a partial victory to me. Because I still keep on sinning. Whereas this Jesus that died to sin for me, this Jesus never sinned. Doesn't it seem like, even if his victory was total, his victory was partially mine. In fact, I have proof of it. I have proof of it. It's not just in my battle against sin. It is in this. All the Christians that I have known have either died or they are dying and they are on their way to death. How can you say that this victory of Jesus is totally ours? This whole thing is a scam. Maybe you are on the verge of saying Christianity truly is a scam. Can I tell you to wait? Can I tell you wait? Because though this victory seems partial, it only seems partial because you have a wrong view of timing. You see, because God is very methodical in what he does. And so his intervention to make this world back to being an ordered world comes with a plan. And with that plan, here's what I can tell you. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Let me tell you, I agree with your frustration. There are things and thoughts that I have that sometimes I'm like, when will this thing go? If all we have today as we live, if all we have is what Jesus has brought for us, then it's an utter disappointment. It will be a total letdown. But it's only a matter of time. And let me explain it to you. You see, sin that we spoke about, sin's mastery of us expresses itself in three ways. It enters us, it masters us, and it condemns us. It enters us, 
it masters us and then what? It condemns us. It enters us. This is what we talk about, the presence of sin. It masters us. This is what we talk about, the power of sin. But it condemns us. This is what it means when we talk about the penalty of sin. The presence of sin, the power of sin, and the penalty of sin. But God, through what happened on Good Friday and Easter, I can tell you, has totally dealt with it. And the victory of that thing is not partially applied to you. It is totally applied to you. And let me show you how. Let's start with the penalty of it. Now let's move to the other two chapters in Romans. In Romans chapter 8, concerning the penalty of sin, when we think about the cross and the resurrection, what do we hear? We hear that this, that there is therefore now no word condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ was condemned for your sin and God does not believe in double jeopardy. God is not going to condemn Jesus on the cross for your sin and now going to condemn you in hell again. The penalty of sin has already been dealt with. It's been dealt with Christ and if you believe in Christ, it has been totally dealt with you. Are we following? But then what about the power of sin? That is what we've been talking about. That if Christ conquered the grave, then Christ has conquered the thing that brought us to the grave, that is sin. So he now deals with identity and then says you can live over out of the power of that. But now you say there's a power at work in me. But Christ sends another power. Verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit. Somebody say the spirit. The law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, because Jesus has sent, he's not sending, he has sent his spirit, now in your life, the power of sin is being dealt with. He has dealt with it totally with Jesus, but the penalty has been dealt with, the power is being dealt with, and it will be fully dealt with because the spirit has been given to you. But what about the presence? Which is where your question is. Because there's one, yet one more place where the victory of sin in our lives must be expressed. And here's the point. As long as we are still in this body, as long as we are still here, the problem with the presence of sin cannot be dealt with. It can be, you can't run, run away from it. The reason why you still continue to sin is because you cannot leave your body. When you die, you stop sinning. Sure you know. But once you are still here, the presence of sin is there. You can get increasing victory over sin. But the presence of sin is still here. And that's why when we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about a change of our status. We're not just talking about a change of our mind, a change of our behavior. We are talking about a total transformation. Give me Romans chapter 8 verse 23. That's why it says this. Not only so, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruit of the Spirit, that is, we receive the Spirit, we groan inwardly. That we are saying there's something wrong here. We are groaning inside us. As we eagerly await. Somebody that is eagerly awaiting knows that something is going to happen for sure. Isn't it? Yes. As we eagerly await what? Our adoption to sonship. What is that adoption to sonship? It is what? The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. We hope for it. We eagerly await it. It hasn't happened. But we know it is going to happen. It is only a matter of time. See, how do you know? How can we be sure? I told you that Emmanuel likes to annoy me. Imagine somebody can take something 
as beautiful and as solemn as responding to the songs of adoration and still find a way of throwing jabs at me. He said, how is it that Arsenal fans can be so far away and yet still feel like they have lost? It's re- no, it's, I, I don't understand. This club, I don't, we are going to have a deliverance session for Arsenal. Because I don't understand what's been happening the last couple of days. Honestly, the last couple of weeks. It's bad. Three losses in a row. But we shall rise again. But let me tell you a little bit about Arsenal, a little bit of history. Uh, it is my pulpit. I will preach the way I want. Nothing. First of all, for those who don't follow uh, football, let me just give you about when you hear something like the English Premier League. The English Premier League is played in England. Some people in, in, in Wales also play in it. You have clubs. And we always want to see the champions of the, of the, uh, of the country, the league, over a, a course, the course of a year. How do you know the champions? Well, everybody plays 38 games. If you win, you get three points. If you draw, you get one point. If you lose, you get zero. And the people, after 38 games, the club with the highest number of points are the champions. So it's not about whether you lost today and you won tomorrow. You can lose two matches and you can still win the championship. Is it clear? Now, in 2003-2004, the Arsenal team then were unstoppable. Jens Lehmann in goal. Lauren, right back. Ashley Cole, left back. In the middle, so Campbell and, and, and Martin Keown. In the middle midfield, you had Patrick Vieira. Gilberto Silva. On the right, Freddie Jungberg. On the left, my favorite player, Robert Perez. And ahead, the playmaker, Dennis Beckham. <laughs> and in front, Igwe himself. <laughs> Thierry Henry. Unstoppable. Everything that came before them, left, right, and center. It, was the, it is the greatest team of the Premier League era. Uh, there's no... Con- there's none. There's none... You want, to, you want to preach? Uh, wisdom, you have wisdom. Come and preach. Now, how many games do I say it takes to win a Premier League? At the 34th game, the 34th game, Arsenal played their worst enemies, Tottenham Hotspur. We're playing at their own home field. And when they played the game, it was a draw, and Arsenal had 82 points at that time. 82 points. The second and the third were Chelsea and Manchester United. And they had three games left. What is the maximum number of points they can get? Nine points. And after Arsenal had played, Chelsea had 72 points and Manchester United had 71 points. Arsenal had 82 points. What does that mean? What does that mean? Mathematics now? 
Arsenal had already won because the most Chelsea could get was nine. If Chelsea got 70, uh, nine plus 72, they would have got 81. And therefore, there was no way mathematically they could get to where Arsenal was. At 34 games, Arsenal were already the champions. But listen to me. They were guaranteed champions, but they were not yet the crowned champions. Why? Because the league had not yet finished. They still had to play the remaining games on the schedule. We knew that Arsenal had already won the league, but it was only a matter of time before they were crowned. Somebody is not yet understanding what I'm saying. You see, in Christ Jesus, even though the time has not yet elapsed, we know that even though the games have not all been played, we have already won. Are you, are you following me? You see, the Arsenal team were called invincible because they did not lose a game. Can I say that if you are in Christ Jesus, he calls you an invincible. Because even though we have not yet dealt with the, the presence of sin, we know that because of what Jesus did in that he rose from the dead, we know that the league is already over. For if you are in Christ Jesus, even though you are not yet a current victor, you are a guaranteed victor. You see, Jesus, remember, did not rise from the dead on his own. God, through the Holy Spirit, did it. Fact. Now, that same Holy Spirit that Jesus, that raised Jesus from the dead, if you believe in Jesus, that Holy Spirit is given to you Fact. Now, can you allow your imagination to go a little bit further? If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8 verse 11, let's say it together. If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you have already guaranteed one. That's why it says that in Christ, we are already more than conquerors. Not in one thing, not just the penalty, not just the, the, the power, but also the presence of sin. Am I speaking to someone? Maybe I can encapsulate this with Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14. He says, and you also were included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. I don't want to assume that everybody here has believed. And Paul says, when you believed, you were included in Christ. But when you believed that you were included with Christ, you were marked with a seal. You have a seal upon you. And what's that seal? The promise word. Holy Spirit. Verse 14. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until it's only a matter of time. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise and glory of his name. You know what a guarantee is? A depositing guarantee. If I want to buy a house today and I don't have the total amount of money to pay for the house. Let us say it's a hundred million. I will go to a mortgage bank to collect that 100 million. The mortgage bank will say this. We will not give you the 100 million. Bring 10 million. And if you bring that 10 million, we'll give you 90. And the reason for that 10 million is, the 10 million is saying that he who gave you this 10 million has the job 
to be able to get the remaining 90. The 10 million is a proof that the 100 million will be paid. Are you following? And it is in the likeness of the total 100 million. Now, it's not 100 million. There's interest and all of that. We understand what I'm saying. The analogy fails. But are you following? The Holy Spirit is giving as a down payment what the Holy Spirit did to you in your spirit by raising you from the dead, he is also going to do in your bodies. We are going to have Holy Spirit formed bodies so that at some point we shall be able to say oh death, where is your sting? Oh grave, where is your victory? For there is coming a time when the trumpet will sound, when Christ shall come and those that are in the grave they shall come back to life. And if Jesus comes, when you are not yet in the grave, don't worry you will not miss out because then you will not go the way of the grave for behold I show you a mystery we shall not all die but we shall be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye for the dead shall be raised in glory the dead shall be raised in point imperishable and the dead shall be raised immortal they shall not die anymore how do we know this because God has given you the Holy Spirit it is only a matter of time and so here's the message of Easter God has dealt with the, the penalty of sin in your life. He's dealing with the power of sin. He will yet deal with the presence of sin. Don't fear death. Don't fear sin. If you are in Christ, death is no longer an executioner. It is just a gardener. If they put you six, six feet under, they're not laying you to rest. They are planting you so that when you come out, you will come out in the resurrection. Let us rise up to our feet and pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.